I was riding home from work on Friday and I spotted a doe in the middle of the field, freshly mowed field, not far from the road. And I thought, well, it's really strange to see something out there like that in the middle of the day. wonder what's up. And I watched a little and I saw that she was licking something. I was like, oh no. And uh, so I turned around and I headed back and, um, and um, crossed the fence and, and uh, as I walked up, I saw two little ears sticking up and I thought, oh, it's alive. Maybe it's okay. Because I know what happens when you mow fields. And I got up there and it was alive. But the three legs that I could see were all missing. The back end did not look good. You know, I stopped to tell it I was sorry, and um, that's all I could do. There was nothing else to do other than call the farmer who said that he would come and put it out of its misery. But I had to think how, like life, the farmer was just doing his job. He was making hay for the cattle. He meant no harm. He would have avoided the damage if he could if he'd only known, but he didn't. It reminded me again of the words of Jesus that said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man, man by whom the offense comes. Sometimes the one causing the offense was once a little one who was offended. Sometimes the offender is just doing his job. Sometimes he's so wrapped up in his own pain that he's oblivious to the pain that he's causing. But the words of Jesus are the same, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And in my own words today, I would say it were better for him if someone tied a rock around his neck and threw him in the ocean. And that sounds a little more like today's language, doesn't it? it uh, and we start pondering it that way. We say, how terrible. And it is. I would like to speak today on the horror of offending a little one. The horror of offending a little one. Like if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And I would like to read the first 14 verses. <laughs> For a little context of the passage, I just noticed uh, this morning that... Um, Jesus had just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I say just. I don't know whether it was hours before or whether it was days before. And this was just the way it was sandwiched in here in the, in the, in the passage. But it seems that at the very least, it was God inspired that it came together like this so that we could see it in, in its context. 
But he'd come off the mountain and, uh, and there was, the disciples were there and there was a crowd around and, and there was a problem. There was a little boy who was demon-possessed. And um, his father didn't know what to do and the disciples couldn't help him and, and Jesus came and healed him. So we have a, that picture. And then a little later, in the, the next part of the passage, the... Um, that the temple, the guys who are doing the temple taxes come to these disciples and say, hey, you know, uh, does your father, uh, does your father, does your uh, master pay taxes? And they said, yeah. So, uh, you know, when they're together, Jesus, of course, knows what's going on. And he talks to them and says, hey, by the way, um, it, should we really need to be paying taxes? And he asked some questions to clarify, and I don't understand all that, and so I'm going to leave that. But, but basically, he was telling them, it, we, I, I, we don't really need to pay taxes. We don't really need to pay it. But this is what he said then. He said, but so that we don't offend them, I want you to go and catch a fish, take the money, and pay the tax for you and me. And um, so... The concept of children that have been offended. This little boy had been offended. Do you know what the word offend means? You see, in, in conservative context, often, at least back when I was growing up, I heard the word offended. It's sort of like somebody's unhappy with what you did, okay? That's not what this word means, not at all. The word here means to cause someone to stumble, to cause someone to sin. To cause someone to turn away from truth. That's, that's the concept of offense. To cause somebody to be, I would say, to lose out on being what God called them and, and intended them to be. In a sense, you might say that little fawn was offended because he could not be what he was called to be. This little boy with the devil was offended because somehow something gave the devil the right to come into his life. Jesus cured him of that offense. And, and, and I think Jesus was saying, I don't want these guys in there that are doing the temple tax to think wrongly about me, even though I'm the creator of heaven and earth and they probably don't know it. And even though I'm bringing them salvation and they probably don't know it, I, I don't want to give them a reason to, to not put their trust in me when they do because uh, of something. So that, that is sort of the background for this, this passage. So was it meant to, to exactly be the background in that way? I'm not sure, but I found it interesting how they tied together. You will also notice, if you read farther than what we go, that, that in our passage he's talking about not offending the little ones. But in the next passage he's talking about restoring a, a lost sheep. And then about forgiveness. So this is sandwiched in between those, those different passages. We'll begin reading at chapter 18, verse 1. And at the same time the disciples came... 
um, came the disciples to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto them and set him in the midst of them. And he said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. I think we're going to stop there just for a moment. I'd like to comment on some of the verses we talked about already. So the disciples come to Jesus and says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And... Um, you know, they had their culture, their perspectives, and, and Jesus was always turning them toward truth. And, um, and so Jesus gives them this surprising answer, and he says, if you don't become like a child, you're not even going to get there. It's not a matter of who's great or not. It's a matter of you need to become like a child. And I suppose that they were scratching their head and thinking, wow, now what in the world is he talking about? In a sense, though, that is, uh, that is what God calls us to, is to go back to our childhood. You see, as, as adults, we think. Thinking is good. Um, but we, sometimes we, we reason into places where we do not allow God to be God. We don't believe what God says because it doesn't make sense to us. And, and so we, we, you know, there's a reason why when children pray for something, God answers their prayers better than he does yours or mine sometimes. Have you ever noticed those things? And, you know, when, when really amazing things happen, it's sometimes it's because of the prayer of a child. It's because, it's because we have adult minds. And God says, if you really want to be in the kingdom, you need to think like a child. You need to trust me like a child. You need to believe me like a child. When I tell you something, it doesn't have to make sense. You just have to believe that what I say is the truth. And he goes on to say that if you want to be the greatest, the greatest person is the one that humbles himself, who is humbled like a child. And so he was telling them, don't despise childhood. See, child, see a childlike attitude as something to develop into, as the ultimate achievement. And then he, um, and then he goes on, if, if you go down to verse 14, I think we'll skip down to there, the, the sort of the... the um, climax of what he was saying 
It says, even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Father puts great value on the children and does not want them to be lost. And so this warning about offending little ones is sandwiched into this dialogue. And... Um, <clears throat> And I think the, the message that Jesus is giving us is do not be careless with the heart of a child because it's valuable to the Father. It is a, it's a carefree time. It is a formative time. It is a teachable time. They are imitators. They do what we do, whether we like it or not. They're not trying to be somebody. They're... they're their sense of value and importance is tied into someone else. There's nobody as big as my daddy. You see, perhaps that's the attitude of a child that we need to develop, that our importance is not based upon us, that our importance is with the Father. Back to the preeminence of Christ. I would like to keep reading, I think. And so, so if your hand or if your foot offends you, cut them off and cast them from you. It's better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I understand from another passage and, and comments on it that the concept here could be if your hand or your foot cause you to offend. Not necessarily just cause you to sin, but maybe cause you to offend someone else or cause them to sin. And in a sense, that makes a little more sense in the context. I'm suspicious that that's, uh, that's the concept here that he's saying. So, so he's saying... If, if you find yourself being a, a um, offending a little one, particularly, you need to do something drastic to make that stop. Because, because God doesn't smile at that. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Because you see, our offense not only offends others, it also results in how God deals with us. Take heed that you do not despise. And see, this, this, this fits right in that context, this, this interpretation, I think. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Did you know that every child has an angel? Children, children, did you know that you have an angel in heaven? It says that in heaven children's angels behold the face of the Father. They are looking at God. 
and they're thinking about you, I think is what it's saying. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if we have an angel. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to come to save that which was lost. How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, doesn't he leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek that which has gone astray? And if so be he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I ask you, what was Jesus talking about? What did he have in mind? What is the first thought in our day and age that comes to your mind when you think about a passage like this? And I'm just curious whether the first thing that came to your mind was sexual abuse. I'm just curious. Did anybody else think of that? No. Okay, at least one. Okay, I didn't know whether... But that's a, that's a sermon all by itself. It's a very serious offense. And um, But I would like to suggest to you this morning, I'm not minimizing that subject at all, but I would like to, like to suggest that probably there are other areas of offense that, that together are probably more than, than that also. I think that probably deser deserves its own sermon. I have a feeling that, that many, uh, many more have been offended by other ways and ways that we might say we might justify or say the person was just doing their job. I would like to talk about, I think it might be seven of them. I don't think I counted when I got done. Maybe it's just six. And this will not be an exhaustive list by any means. Uh, but I hope it will help you and I to think and consider some of these ways that, that we can cause offense to little ones. Um, these things will be trampling all over my toes as well. Um, I've made more than my share of mistakes in life. I tried to make less than I used to. And I uh, think God is helping me with that. What are some of these areas of offense? The first one I have on my list is angry parents or authorities. You know, there are reasons that in, in our situations we can feel a, a, right, a right to be angry. Um, sometimes it can feel like getting angry is the only way that we can make something happen. Or that we have a right to be angry. Or maybe we're frustrated because we've tried everything else it feels like and, and, um, and nothing is working. I understand those feelings very well, but please hear me. Those are excuses. 
The Bible tells us the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And that's particularly true, I would say, to those when the anger is directed to those who are under you. I'm not making excuses for anger in other ways, but I think that's particularly damaging in that way. Is there, unright- is there a righteous anger? Yes, there is. But I would venture to guess, based on my own experience, that there's not one in a hundred that would qualify for that. So my recommendation is squelch it. It probably doesn't come from God under most circumstances. Stern, yes. Angry, no. There's a big difference. In a similar vein, the Bible says, fathers provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And, um, you know, it's not the same thing as being angry at them, but it but the thing of discouragement, there's times that we can, we can do things that make our children be angry. And, um, and, and not just our children, our, our, the people that we are responsible to in church or our employees or, or um, um, our students if we are a teacher or, or things like that. lest they be discouraged, lest they give up. I was recently told of a father who would play with his children in church and then discipline when, discipline when them when they got too noisy. That is, a way of, that is a way of provoking them to anger because at some point they will, they will feel the unfairness and get, get angry. Um, it's certainly, it, it, yes. You know, I, I, sometimes, sometimes we have our own glitches. The things, you know, we all grew up in a home. None of our homes were perfect. We learn an awful lot from our parents, and our children are going to learn from us. And um, you know, it, there's. We need to keep walking with the Lord and keep letting the Lord teach us things so that we can keep improving on the, the, um, improving on the, the home life that we grew up with. Angry parents or authorities. Permissive parents. In some ways, this is a direct opposite from angry but sometimes they both happen together. You know, sometimes there's anger expressed, but, but then there is, the wrong is not squelched. Other times, things are just allowed to go on in ways they should not. But you know, allowing, allowing children to do what is wrong is teaching them that sin does not have consequences. Ecclesiastes 8 verse chapter 8 verse 11 says because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set at them to do evil and that's, that's true in the home as well 
I'm sure it's true in other places as well, when you just let things go by that should be dealt with. Ongoing permissiveness, allowing a child to get by, will condition them to disobey God and believe that somehow they will get by. But they won't because it's appointed unto what man wants to die and after that the judgment. Unconfessed sin. Children and young people often know when there's something wrong with you or me. Sometimes I think they understand those things better than we do ourselves. It often shows in our faces. It shows in our responses to life. It shows in unreasonable responses to other people's offenses. Oftentimes, children may not know what's wrong, but they know something is wrong. Or sometimes they may hear what we did, and, and yet we keep going as if nothing happened. No, no confession is made. And we expect them to trust us. Why? Perhaps because we've fooled ourselves about our own righteousness. But, you know, youth are not fooled. They know what's going on. And when they, or when they find out the truth, it's often not good. I think we can also do damages to our children and to youth by telling them everything that we know about every offense that somebody else did. You know, there's a, there's a fine line, especially as your children get older, between admitting between discussing things that are wrong in certain situations you know if, if um, and, and on the other hand just uh, always making excuses the excuses don't work but you know there's a there, there's something about being honest that is important for for our youth, but there's also such a thing as as um, as a critical spirit that doesn't do anything for their their um, upbringing. And um, for their respect for others, knowing how to knowing how to do that in a, in a right way is a challenge. And I've not done well with that all the time. I admit that. I know that. Having wrong priorities. You know, your children know what's important to you. They follow you more than, they, than you think. And um, sometimes in a different way. Sometimes they do it just like you do it. Other times they react to the way you do it. And sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's in things that are not that big a deal, fortunately. 
but it's, it's sometimes it's almost amusing. You know, you can be very conscientiously doing something a certain way, and, and your children come along and they think, well, boy, this is just crazy, and they do it exactly the other way. Uh, and sometimes they're right, actually. Um, maybe they're right more than we think. But, uh, but the fact, my point is, though, that, that our priorities affect our children. They affect those around us. You know, uh, as pastors, my priorities are going to affect you. I can't get away from it. It's just going to happen. Um, your priorities are going to affect the, the young people around you. And um, I would like to say thank you. Uh, there, there's, there's some of you in particular that I think about when I think of, of, of steadfastly being available and being being a church and, and um, being available to do things when things need to happen. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. But if we're always spending on ourselves and only concerned about our own bank accounts, our, our children see that. And we shouldn't expect our children to live a life of service and generosity if that's what they observe in us. And then sometimes we think we're putting God first and we're doing all these spiritual important things and then we neglect we neglect our children, our wives, or others that we're truly responsible for. Learning to live life in a balanced way is difficult and I think I'm not the only one that finds that to be true. Um, but these these neglects can sometimes short circuit or, or offend or cause little ones to stumble and to not live life to their full potential when we have wrong priorities. Another one I think of is not teaching the truth. A watered down or misconstrued truth is a lie. We heard that in no uncertain terms in Paul's letter to Galatians. We heard it in our Sunday school lesson this morning. The importance of preaching a true gospel, of telling the truth. When personal opinions are given the weight of scripture and young people discover that we're not telling them the truth, guess what happens? Nothing we say is going to count for anything. And I'm not saying that we're going to get it all right. We're not. But there's a difference between someone who honestly applies scriptures in ways that we wouldn't and someone who decides on the answer before he hears the question. When we go to the scriptures deciding beforehand what we want to believe and then we go and then we find a reason to back up what we've already decided that is dishonest. And young people will be offended with that kind of teaching. Abuse of authority. God has given authority to parents, civil authorities, and the church. And if we think it's not so, it's usually, in my opinion, 
because we've seen enough abuse that we look for a way out of the obvious. That is, we've already been offended by these things. Many times those who carry authority have used it in a way that's entirely out of the realm of the authority that God has given. Every authority has, has places of authority as it has limitations to that authority. The authority that God has given us in our homes, in our churches, is not a blank check to do what we want, to say what we want, and to require what we want. And I believe that using it in that way stimulates rebellion in those who are under it and causes disrespect for God's authority and order that he has established. If you want to cause a little one to stumble, then stimulate him to disrespect and blame it on him. It won't be hard to destroy him. But I don't recommend that because you don't want to deal with the wrath of God on your own life. Division splits and divorce. These are very, sim very different and yet very similar issues. From a child's perspective, in each case, the person you love. The people you love are divided, and you're forced to often choose between one or the other. This happens when marriage is split. It happens when churches split, and friends are divided, and people are divided. Divorce usually happens because one or both are acting in selfishness. Usually it's both. The devastation to a child is huge. There's rarely a divorce that fixes more than it ruins. The home that they had was split in two. A similar one that we talked about was church divisions and splits. Paul tells us that we should all speak the same thing. How can we all speak the same thing if we believe differently? But he tells us there's one spirit, there's one Lord, there's one baptism. I believe often the problem that we don't speak the same thing is because we, we preach another gospel. We're mixing something into the gospel of Jesus. We're giving heed to the doctrines and commandments of men. We're holding them and our opinions above the word of God. I don't have time to tell you to divide some of those concepts out for you this morning. I will just say this much, that I believe that there is a proper place for correct application of Scripture. I can't define, I don't have time to define that this morning, but there is a difference, I believe. To what degree the difference is, I'm still, I've been trying to find that answer for 35 years and I still haven't got there yet. 
But we need to be careful as we were encouraged this morning in Sunday school class to hold on to truth. There are times when something needs to happen to change, to protect from the consistent loss of our youth or because of a continued disobedience and disregard for scripture in the church. I recognize that. Sometimes changes have to happen. But how many times are the reasons that we choose to split not as holy as we think they are? How often are they a result of, of focusing on things instead of the real issue like we heard this morning in Sunday school? How often do our youth see through our self-righteous pride and our obstinance? And I think that we should think very carefully and prayerfully and honestly before we make drastic moves in a church. The effects on little ones can be, be huge, and that does not stop at 12 years of age. I know a particular situation where it appears, it appears that the nasty split that, that happened years ago has affected the person in a very dramatic way and walking with God all these years and trusting God. Another brother preacher told me just recently that if it had not been for Eli walking beside him during a split that he experienced, he probably wouldn't even be in the church at all. Someone you know, someone you've heard preach. which tells us that not only should we avoid causing someone to offend, we need to be active in standing alongside, especially our young people when they're going through difficult things. Pray and ask God to show you someone you can stand with because they're, they're around. There are people that are struggling in different ways. We, don't, we can't always see it all. I can't see it all. I don't know what's happening in a lot of people's lives. And sometimes the person that you're the most effective in reaching is not someone in your own church. Maybe somebody outside of your church that God's called you to. He may call somebody else to touch someone in your church. You don't know that. God has his ways. He knows how to pull things together. But we need to pray and seek God in those things. I'd like to remind you that Paul and Barnabas had a split. But I'd like you to notice some things about it that I think are important. They went different ways. Well, see, I think most of you know the reason they had a split, but I'll just remind you in case some of you don't. See, they were getting ready to go on a missionary trip together again, and, um, and, and Barnabas wanted to take um, his nephew, John Mark, along. Now, John Mark had been on a previous missionary journey. Part of the way through, things got too tough, and he left and went home. Paul says, oh no, we're not taking this one alone. He left us the last time. We don't need that kind of help. Barnabas says, yeah, I think we need to take him alone. You know, there's some things that have changed since last time. Now, I'm making up some of these details, okay? You understand. 
But somehow, somehow or another, this discussion went, and this thing got on, and it got sort of hot. And eventually they decided, you know what? This, we're not fixing this. I'm going to go this way, and you're going to go that way. We'll choose somebody to go with us, and you take John Mark and take him with you, and I'm going to take Silas, Paul says, and we'll go the other way. And so they did. They split. But I'd like you to notice what happened, and maybe what didn't happen. They went different ways and both ministered the gospel. They did not allow their division to, 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 to divide them from their cause. Okay? They didn't avoid each other for 20 years and blame it on the other person. They didn't refuse to fellowship with each other and they weren't bad-mouthing each other in the meantime. Now, how do I know that? Because years later, or sometime later, I don't know how long later, Paul tell, has, writes in his letter, take John Mark and bring him with you because he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, do you think John Mark would have worked with Paul if Barnabas had been bad-mouthing Paul all the time? No, he wouldn't. You see, if he had been, he would have been offending John Mark. That tells us something. Sometimes we have to go different directions. I understand that. But when we do, we need to be careful with our tongue. I need to be careful with my tongue. I heard somebody, it was sort of funny at the time. It was funny at the time. But in looking back, I think it may have been offensive because of how that person, but I heard a person tell a, a girl one time, said, you know, said, when you came here, your tongue was loose on one end. And it sounded like he was getting ready to do a compliment, but he says, and now it's loose on both. Everybody laughed. Of course we did, we were young. I was feeling that hurt more than we think, but that wasn't my point. What was my point? My point is that a tongue can be loose. We have to be careful with our tongue. Like the farmer mowing, the, mowing over the fawn, sometimes the damage is done and there's nothing we can do to fix it. Sometimes time has passed by. What's done is done. Decisions have been made, sometimes devastating ones for which there's no turning back. But we can repent. We can express our sorrow to those we've offended, first to God and those to those that we have, then to those that we have hurt. It never hurts to say, I'm sorry. We can accept the forgiveness of God. We must accept the forgiveness of God and learn from our mistake. Because if we don't accept God's forgiveness into our lives, when we look back to our stuff, we can allow these things to overwhelm us and and destroy us and keep us from being effective. God wants us to be effective. God cares about the little lambs, but God cares about us too. God does not want us to get so, so caught up in our own failures that we, that, that we fail at being what God wants us to be today. Sometimes too, we have been the one that's been offended. 
And sometimes the, the offense has devastated a person's life for all of their life. And sometimes attempts to resolve it are fruitless. I'd like to remind you that God's grace is for you too. God's grace is big enough. You're not, you don't have to be stuck in the offenses of your childhood. You don't have to be. God has a grace for you to bring you to healing. God doesn't want you to perish either, to flounder, to live in frustration, to live in anger, and live in bitterness. And he's provided a way back to his love, to his acceptance, to his power, and to his joy. God bless you. Let's have a song.